Take a Bible, find Exodus 20. This will be the capstone study of the Ten Commandments. We had one week for introduction at the beginning, and then we've gone through each of the commandments one at a time, and then tonight we'll just tack on a few thoughts, uh, important thoughts at the end, now that we've studied each of the Ten Commandments individually. In my house, we use a book. Uh, this is it. It's called the New City Catechism. Um, it's 52 questions and answers for our hearts and our minds. And it's basically a way to get kids thinking about the Bible, thinking about theology, thinking about truth. You ask a question, and then the kids learn the answer, and you sort of go through, and each question and answer builds on itself as you go through uh, the book. And if you want to be humbled, or maybe I should say humiliated, just try to keep up with the kid memorizing this, because they can learn it way, way faster than any adult can, I promise. But I want to just share with you a couple of questions and a couple of answers. I want to share with you question and answer 7, 13, 14, and 15, because they all tie into the Ten Commandments, they all tie in to the law, and they all tie into what we're going to talk about tonight. So here's Question 7 from the New City Catechism. What does the law of God require? Here's the answer. Personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. That we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love our neighbor as ourselves. What God forbids should never be done. And what God commands should always be done. That's it. That's all you got to do. And we've seen the challenge of that as we've gone through each of the commandments each and every week. Here's question 13. This is sort of like the duh question of the whole book. Can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? And when we do this one at home, my kids have learned the answer. But when I ask them that question, they always say no. They want to get by with no. But here's the real answer. Since the fall, no mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly, but consistently breaks it in thought, word, and deed. Question 14. This is an important question. Did God create us unable to keep his law? Meaning, is it a rigged game from the get-go? Did he give us something that we never would have been able to do? Is that how God made us? And the answer to question 14 is no. But because of the disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, all of creation has fallen. We are all born in sin and guilt, corrupt in our nature, and unable to keep God's law. Not just that we don't do it, but because of the fall, we're unable to do it. Our nature is fallen and sinful and guilty and corrupt. Question 15. This is really the question we're thinking about tonight. Since no one can keep the law, we've established that in the questions here, we've established it over the last 10 weeks. Since no one can do it, what is the purpose of the law? What's its purpose? Answer number 15. That we may know the holy nature of God and the sinful nature and disobedience of our hearts and thus our need of a Savior. The law also teaches and exhorts us to live a life Worthy of our Savior. 
That's what we're going to try to center on tonight is that answer and some of those ideas. And I'll just put the, the key words in orange up here. When you come to the law of God, you realize that God is holy, holy, holy. He is entirely different than us. He is entirely set apart from his creation. He's entirely pure and perfect. The law teaches you about his character. It exposes your sin. We've seen that each and every week as we've worked through these commands. Even the ones that on a surface level we tend to think, oh, that one's not that bad. I'm, 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 I'm doing okay at that one. When you really dig into it, you say, I'm a miserable failure at that command. And when I break that command, I'm breaking other commands at the same time. So it exposes us. It shows us when you add those two things together, you need a Savior. If God's holy and you're not, something's got to fix that dilemma. Something's got to come in between the holy God and you as a sinner. So we need a Savior. And then the last thing we're going to talk about is the law does show us how to live a life worthy of Jesus that pleases our Savior. So we're just going to read the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. And then we'll jump in and talk about a few things. Exodus 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And we're going to read just a few more verses. When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you and that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. We're going to stop right there. You could keep reading. The story just continues. We're just going to try to answer this question. Why did God give his people the Ten Commandments? I'm going to give you a few reasons why. Number one, understood rightly, 
the Ten Commandments reveal the reality, the scope, and the depth of our sin. They show us that we are, in fact, sinful people. They show us the scope of it, that it covers every part of who we are, everything that we do. And it shows the depth of it, that it's, it's not just our actions, it's not just our words, but it's all the way down to our hearts and our thoughts and our emotions. And when you think about the Ten Commandments and you study through them, you come away realizing this is not grading on a curve. This is not a sliding scale where a 70 passes or a 60 is good enough or you need an 80 or a 90 or whatever. There is none of that with the Ten Commandments. Hold your spot in Exodus 20 because we're going to come back to this chapter. But flip over and look at Deuteronomy 27. The first generation in Exodus 20 that got the Ten Commandments, the first generation out of Egypt, they've died. God has raised up their children, and he's about to bring them into the promised land. And Moses is preaching one more sermon. He's giving them the law again, the second law, Deuteronomy. And look at Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. Cursed be anyone who does not conform the words of this law, or excuse me, confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people said, Amen. You're cursed if you don't do everything written in the law. If you say, well, you know, that's the Old Testament. God was angry back then. Jesus is way nicer. Flip over to the New Testament and look at Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe the most famous sermon Jesus ever preached. And right smack in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, you read Matthew 5, 48, that says, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect is one of those words that doesn't need an adjective with it. doesn't need any other modifier to go with it. You don't need to say completely perfect or always perfect or perfectly perfect. Perfect is perfect. And Jesus says... Here's the standard. You've heard the scribes say this. You've read this in the law. Let me just break it down and make it really simple for you. The standard is perfection. Just like Deuteronomy 27. Right? Confirm these words. Do these words. Obey this word. And if you don't do it, you're cursed. When you realize that's the standard, you come away also realizing, I'm way worse than I ever thought I was. I mean, most Americans, if you really back them into a theological, spiritual corner, will be happy to admit, I'm not perfect. But when you really start to listen to these commands and you really dig into them, you come away saying, no, I'm not perfect, and I'm not even in the ballpark. I'm not, in, I'm not even in the same stratosphere. I mean, we're not even in the same universe as this idea of perfection in God's law. You start to think about the positive-negative rule, and you say, okay, Every time I'm told not to do something in the Ten Commandments, it also means I have to do something. So when it says, don't take God's name in vain, it's not enough to quit saying God's name as a cuss word. I also have to always use it reverently with thought and respect and worship. 
you start to think about the inside-out rule. Corey talked about this last week, especially with commandment 10 and coveting. You read that command number 10 and you go back through all of them and you realize, for example, not only is there such a thing as idolatry externally, a statue that you bow down to, but there's also what Ezekiel talks about, idols of the heart. Things that you set up in your mind and your heart that become the one thing that you worship and that you serve. You think about the brother's keeper rule. This is uh, in the commands. It's found in the command about the Sabbath day, command four, where it talks about you are not to break the Sabbath. You're to keep it holy, and you're to work these days and not work this day. And that applies to you and your wife and your kids and your servants and everybody that you have influence over. And you, you read that in the Sabbath command, and you realize, oh, that'll, that probably also applies to all the other commands. Not only am I responsible for me, but I am my brother's keeper in a very real sense. And I do have responsibility. And you just start digging and digging and you say, well, how deep do you want to go here? It reminds me, I thought this last week about the church that I pastored in Oklahoma. I couldn't find a great picture, so I Google mapped it. And uh, that's pretty good. The, the brown building over on the left is the main sanctuary in the big fellowship hall and the education space in the children's area. And the building over on the right that sort of looks completely different, it's white and has a different color brick, that's the connection building. That's the youth building. Uh, has a gym and youth class, classrooms and things like that. They finished the white building about a year before we moved to Kingfisher. And so they had this old church building and then they had a brand new church building. And everyone had been perfectly fine and content and happy with the old building and how it looked and how it smelled until they had a brand new building. And they went over in that brand new building and everything was clean and everything was nice and it looked pretty and it was just really great. And then they walked back over into their old building and said, this just looks chunky and old and kind of stinks. We need to fix it up. And so we had a little team of people in charge of some renovations in the building. And here's what we found. Every time you fixed one thing, something else stood out to you. So we went through and we put all new carpet in. And then you realized our baseboards are disgusting. (laughs) So we put all new baseboards in, replaced them all. And then you realized the walls are gross. They're just so nasty. We've got to paint the whole thing, paint the whole building. So we paint the whole building. And then you realize the ceiling tiles haven't been changed since 19-whatever. I mean, they're stained, and they're sagging, and they're broken, and they look junky, so we replace all the ceiling tiles. And then you say, would you look at those light fixtures? I mean, they, they're disgusting. And it never stops. You just find one more thing and then something else is exposed. You fix one little thing and something else is exposed. Look, that's kind of the experience when you start digging into the Ten Commandments, right? You may come and you look at them on the surface and you say, well, yeah, you know, not too bad. But then you start digging and you start thinking and you start praying and asking God for conviction and you come away saying, maybe things are not as good as I once thought they were. Many believers, many, have had that experience and become very discouraged. Very discouraged. 
And the balance, as Corey and I talked about this whole series, and we talked with Hunter as he's teaching the youth, we want you to be convicted. We don't want to soft-pedal God's Word and coddle you and make you feel like things are better than they really are. We want to be honest with you. But we also don't want you to despair. And we don't want you to be discouraged. And we don't want you to just feel like there's, this is a hopeless situation. So every lesson we tried to come back to Jesus at the end. Right? We have messed this up, but Jesus came to fix it. How did he fix what we messed up on command one and two and three and all the way through? Here's a few quotes just for you to think about this issue of the law and our sin and how it points us to Jesus. This is St. Augustine. He says, The usefulness of the law lies in convicting man of his infirmity and moving him to call upon the remedy of grace, which is in Christ. You've got to have both. You've got to have the conviction, the conviction, but you've also got to move on to the hope in Jesus Christ. Here's how Martin Luther says it. After the law has humbled, terrified, and completely crushed you, so that you are on the brink of despair, then see to it that you know how to use the law correctly. For its function and use is not only to disclose sin and wrath of God, but also to drive us to Christ. So if you come to the commands and you just stop at the despair, Luther says you're not using the commands right. You've got to let the commands push you to Jesus. John Calvin says the same thing. Moses had no other intention than to invite all men to go straight to Christ. Charles Spurgeon, just to add to this chorus of voices. As the sharp needle prepares the way for the thread, so the piercing law makes a way for the bright silver thread of divine grace. There's pain in that piercing needle. But it brings with it, it pulls with it, the thread of grace. So here's the second thing on your notes. Understood rightly, the Ten Commandments drive us beyond despair to Jesus. Beyond despair to Jesus. And you don't even have to get to the New Testament to see this. Like, be done with the idea that the Old Testament is all laws and rules and God is angry and the New Testament is where you finally get some good news. There's good news right here in Exodus 20 in the very chapter we've looked at every single week. Look at Exodus 20, verse 1 and 2. Right? God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Ten Commandments begin with gospel truth. They don't begin with, if you can do good enough on this ten-question test, then you and I can have a thing. It begins with, I'm your God. I mean, you guys are a mess, and I'm your God. I'm hitching my wagon to you. I'm hitching you to my wagon. However you want to think about it, we're hitched. We're together. I I redeemed you out of Egypt. I brought you out with my powerful hand. I didn't give you the law and then bring you out. I brought you out and now I'm giving you the law. He saved these people, not because of their obedience, but just because he wanted to save them. That's gospel truth. Secondly, the Ten Commandments end with a provision for sacrifice. I mean, as soon as he gives them the ten rules, the big summary... 
Look what we read. This is right where we left off in Exodus 20, verse 22. Exodus 20, 22. The Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burn offerings and your peace offerings and your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come down to you and bless me. If you make this altar, don't build it out of hewn stones. If you wield your tool on it, you'll profane it. Don't go up by the steps of my altar that your nakedness may be exposed on it. God's saying to him, look, here's the ten rules. You're going to break them. So there's going to have to be a sacrifice. And I'm making provision for that. I'm building that into the law. Build this altar, and that's where you come bring these sacrifices because I know that you're going to mess up. I didn't catch God off guard when they failed at these ten. It's built into the very, the very passage that you pull them out of. So the Ten Commandments end with provision for sacrifice, and the Ten Commandments were given in the context of the Abrahamic covenant. And I'll let you look at Galatians 3. This is just Paul's very simple point. God made a covenant with Abraham long before he gave the law through Moses. And the stuff that happened with Moses doesn't annul that covenant that he established with Abraham. And that relationship with Abraham was not based on Abraham's ability to obey or be a good guy or keep the commands or do any of that. It was just based on God's grace to Abraham. That's the foundation stone, God's grace, not the law, and your ability to keep it. So you can look at at Galatians 3. One more thought here. Understood rightly, the Ten Commandments show us how God wants his people to live. How he wants them to live. Exodus 20, 20. We read this just a moment ago. Moses said to the people, do not fear. God has come to test you that the fear fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. He's giving you these commands so that you won't sin. I like this quote from Mark Rooker. I put it in your notes. The Ten Commandments should not be viewed as a restriction on life. On the contrary, they lead to fullness of life. And I'll just be honest with you. Our culture has programmed you to think in the exact opposite. It's not just our culture, but it's your sinful nature wants you to believe exactly the opposite. Satan, from the Garden of Eden, has wanted people to believe the exact opposite, that God's rules restrict us and hem us in, all right? Take away our freedom. And what the biblical view is, no, 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 no. these commands give you freedom to live in a full way. There's not freedom in breaking these commands. There's bondage. The most immediate example I could think about uh, when I thought about this quote from Rooker was, Uh, my two younger girls have started taking piano lessons. And they're almost, after about three months, they're almost as good as Mark Dawson. They're getting really, really close. So they're right on his heels. And they're learning the basics, right? They're learning to read the notes on the lines, staff, and they're learning to find those notes on the keys. And this hand goes here, and this hand goes there. And what they really like to do is find a song that they know the tune to and ignore what's on the page and hammer it out by themselves and just figure it out on their own. 
And what they, I don't know why they do this. This may be a kid thing. It may be an everybody thing. I don't know. But once they learn the right notes, they like to play it as fast as they can. They don't want to hold the notes for the right length. You know, this one has a dot or this one's a, a circle or this one's a quarter note. I don't know all that stuff. They don't know all that stuff. They don't care. They just want the right note played as fastly as they can play it. Just race right through it. And they've been going to the lesson and the teacher says, now you got to slow down. You got to play that one a little bit longer. Oh, you got to play that one a little bit quicker. You're hitting the right notes, but you're not hitting them correctly. And you know, if they sit down and they play the the speed version of Twinkle Twinkle, you can recognize it. But sometimes at the lesson, they sit down and the teacher says, "Okay, scoot over." And they're going to sit here and she's going to sit here. She says, "We're going to play it together." And you may be able to recognize them hammering it out as fast as they can. But when she's playing it correctly and they're playing the speed version, it sounds pitiful. I mean, it's terrible. It's a train wreck. Right? That's sort of the Ten Commandments. The rules of music, the notes. You've got to play the right note. You can't play whatever key you want to play. You've got to play the right key. You've got to play it for the right length of time. You don't get to decide how long you want to play that note. The music tells you this is how long you play it. You could look at that and say, you know, that's very, that's very restrictive. You know, I guess that's the, maybe the jazz artist view. I don't, I don't like that. I, I want to make up my own rules as I go or whatever. But there's freedom in that. There's freedom to play music correctly. How it ought to be played. Where it sounds the way that it ought to sound. And the, the notes are held for the right amount of time. That's not bondage, that's freedom. And it helps you play with other people, right? You can't play with other people if you don't know those rules. You can't sit down with your teacher or the drummer or the singer or whoever and make anything that sounds right if you're not doing the right notes for the right amount of time with the right rests and the right stops and all that stuff. That's what the Ten Commandments are in effect. They're saying to you, these are the notes. This is how you play them. You play them like this, it sounds the best. You live your life like this, it works the best. And all of you together do these 10 things consistently, and life together is going to be way better. It's going to sound way better. It's going to look way better. It's going to feel way better. Your relationships are going to be right with each other. Your relationship's going to be right with God. They're not restrictions on life, but they lead to fullness of life. Another thought here, obeying the Ten Commandments is not how we obtain salvation, but obeying the Ten Commandments is a result of our salvation. You can look at Ephesians 2. We've read it. You know it. Paul says, you're a sinner. You were once a follower of the devil. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive in Jesus. God stepped in. He didn't give you rules. He just stepped in and saved you. He gave you life when you were dead. And you're saved by grace through faith, and it's not of your works. You don't get any boast in it. You don't get any brag in it. It's all of God's grace. You receive it through faith, and you are saved for good works that God has prepared that you should walk in them, right? You're not saved by the good works, but you're saved for the good works. Last thought, we are able to keep We are, this is not a typo, we are able to keep the Ten Commandments 
because of the work God has done in our lives through the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying we can keep them perfectly. I'm not saying you're not going to mess up. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. But I am saying that because of the work the Spirit of God has done in our lives as new covenant believers, we can keep these commands. I'd just like to read two passages. Look at Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations in which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the countries, bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Pay attention to verse 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's old covenant. Looking forward to the new covenant, God says, I'm going to do a work in you in such a way it's going to make me look good. Because right now I don't look very good because you don't look good. And the nations are laughing at you and they're laughing at me. And I'm going to vindicate my name and I'm going to show them that I am holy. I'm going to clean you from your sin. I'm going to give you a new heart and I'm going to put my spirit. I'm going to live inside of you and I'm going to move you to keep my rules and my commandments. Same idea, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Paul says to a church, a group of people who have had their hearts of stone removed and have been given a heart of flesh, right? people who have, have been indwelt by the Spirit of God, people who have been cleansed from their uncleannesses, he says to them, Therefore, Philippians 2, 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out. Not work for, work out. God's already worked it into you. Your job is now to work it out. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. How in the world do you do that? Well, you know, verse 13, that God is the one working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are able to keep the Ten Commandments because of the work that God has done in our lives through the Spirit. We're going to end with a quote from Edmund Clowney. And I'm just going to read it, and then we're going to pray. Edmund Clowney says this, Christian, take heart. Christ has accomplished the law for you. And it is in the confidence and freedom that Christ brings you that you can, by the power of His Spirit, Please, God, and live out in your own life the will of God, uh, what the will of God demands of you. You will not do this perfectly, but you need not do it perfectly because God has looked on Christ and pardoned you. 
So reflect on all that Christ has done for you in perfectly keeping each of God's commandments and go out today rejoicing, ready to do the work that God has prepared in advance for you, knowing that you have already been prepared for that work. Let's pray.